Merry Christmas. And uh, we trust and pray that God will bless you this week as you make preparations. Men, you have very little time left uh, to make preparations. So uh, get busy. The night comes when no one can buy stuff. So um, let me invite you to open your Bibles to the book of John. The book of John. What a joy it is to come into the Lord's house and worship together. Um, Seeing those glorious truths about our uh, beloved Savior. Our text this morning is found in John chapter number 1, beginning in verse number 14. And we'll read that in just a moment. The proverb writer tells us in uh, Proverbs chapter number 30, uh, there are three things that are too wonderful for me and four I do not understand. Here he speaks about things he, he sees as an amazement to him. He, he just wonders at how these things work out and speaks about the way of the eagle in the sky and the way of the serpent upon the rock, and you can work through that. But, but it shows us, even in his own musing over these things in life, how that we can, can be captivated by things around us. We can be held in amazement by how they work. I don't know if you're a mechanical person. Maybe you sit and you, you watch stuff work out or conveyor systems and all that, and you, you just wonder to yourself, how does that work? How did they create that? Who came up with the idea? Maybe you're not like that, and pray for those who are. Uh, but we, we do hold ourselves, as we look at God's creation, the world around us and things, in amazement at times. Even if we can't solve the riddle of them, you know, even if we don't know all the answers or, or put all the pieces together. I think you find that in many truths in the word of God. But we also find ourselves captivated by those things that we can't explain. We know the water cycle and we can explain it. Some of us can explain it probably better than others. And, and we know how those things work and yet we can still be amazed at snow falling on the ground. Or as you stand on the mountain and you look out at the scenery over Lake Placid during fall and you look at that observatory place as you you try to take a picture and capture what it is that you're seeing and it's just futile, isn't it? I know often I've tried to take pictures of of the area and the snow and I want to send them home to family and be like, this is what snow looks like, you know. But it just doesn't look the same when you capture it in, in a film. You're never fully able to grasp what it is you experience or what it is you've come to understand or, or to be at a place where you say, I've seen enough. This is so beautiful or wonderful that I've seen all I need to see. There's always that continual amazement that comes with that. It brings us to a thought that John Owen uh, states as he writes, speaking of the glory of Christ and uh, his work says this concerning creation, in all these things there is no glory in comparison to what is proposed to us in the mysterious constitution of the person of Christ. What is he saying when he look at who Christ is, coming together what the word teaches us, what we'll look at this morning in, in John chapter number one, he says there is no comparison in wonder or glory. He goes on to elaborate in in the way he writes, The sun has no glory, the moon and stars no beauty, the order and influence of heavenly bodies have no excellency in comparison to the doctrine of the incarnation of Christ. The coming of what we see in John 14, the word becoming flesh. 
something so glorious that creation, as the psalmist would say, uh, testifies and speaks to the to the majesty of who this God is, and we stand in amazement with the psalmist over and over as we look at the world around us, and yet Owens is challenging us, and I think rightfully so, that in comparison to who God is, creation dims. No wonder in Psalms chapter number eight he says, You have set your glory above the heavens, as he begins that great chapter, wondering and looking at God's God's work. Here in the subject we find before us, we find this mystery, not just a mystery of who Jesus is. He comes to to answer probably the most significant, important question that could ever be asked. Jesus asked his followers, if you remember in Matthew chapter number 16, as they're standing there and, uh, and, and Jesus says, who do men say that I am? Do you remember that? The most important question that the world could ever answer. The most significant weighty subject that we could ever entertain in our minds. Who is this Jesus? Who is he? What are men saying that he is? And we know the world is saying much about Jesus in our day just as it did in their day. And uh, that he was a prophet, he was a good man, he may be uh, Elijah coming back from the dead or John the Baptist. And, and all of these statements men were saying that they were, and we speak in general terms in our day, he's, he's the, kind of the head of the church and all this stuff that we tend to talk about in our world. And yet the question itself is so important, so significant, because it isn't just left in generalities. He looks to his followers and he says, all that's good and well, but who do you say that I am? The significance of it isn't just because we want information about who this Jesus is. It is the pointed reality that who Jesus is has has personal, intimate ramifications for every one of us here this morning. And in fact, what we read in the word of God, everyone who has ever been born or ever been created, the impact and the magnitude of this person which we come Christmas to, to celebrate and think about and sing songs about. And, and, and it is here that John kind of fills us in on the reality as he begins to answer who this Jesus is. Well, there's many places we could turn in the word of God uh, to answer the question. And maybe we'll look at some of these in, in, in the days ahead. But here we are brought back to verse number 14 in John's first or gospel or John's gospel, his introduction. Look at it with me. He says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Let's pray just for a moment. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the subject which we have in front of us. We thank you for the spirit. We just pray, God, that you would encourage us, open our eyes to see in Christ's name. Amen and amen. We'll look at this verse under three headings. You can write these down if you take notes. It may be helpful. First, I want us to notice the first part of the verse dealing with the person of Christ. Who is God in his person? Not necessarily in his titles, but who is he? We live in a world that is fascinated, confused, and, and turned upside down with the reality of identity. We, we talk about it. That's all we hear. 
in our modern culture age. Who is this Jesus in his person? Secondly, we will look at uh, his place. Thirdly, his provision. Notice with me at the beginning of the verse as we come to answer the question, who is Jesus? He says for us at the very outset that he is the word which became flesh. He is the word which became flesh. As our brother Bob began with our scripture reading this morning, he, he gave us some understanding of what he means by the word. He doesn't begin, John doesn't begin with the birth of Jesus in, in Nazareth or, or in Bethlehem. He doesn't begin with Mary and Joseph. He, he begins with who was, who was Jesus before he was Jesus. Here in the language of he was the word. Notice with me in the first few verses of chapter number one. He was the eternal word. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Here Jesus and the word of God telling us in the gospel as we see him walking and in all the, the ministry that he did in this life and, and upon earth and all the miracles that have been uh, recorded for us to see and to know who he is, John begins on, on the very outset of this as saying before all of this ever was, before there was ever a Jerusalem, before there was ever a temple, before there was ever rocks and hills and dirt for him to walk upon, before there was ever a creation, before there was ever a division of the heavenly bodies, before there was ever light, as we come to understand in Genesis 1, there was the Word. That's what he's taking our minds back to. Not the beginning of, of the gospel story, but the beginning of creation story. In eternity past, there was the Word. There was the Word. It was interesting in John's understanding as being a Jew uh, who was monotheistic, believed only in one God. He would have been raised up to, to quote that Old Testament passage says, The Lord our God is one. Hear, O Israel. You, you remember that and recall that. And yet he says, as he comes to understand before everything was, there is this, this person that is with God. The Word. And sometimes in our mind we might think of God singularly as, as being in, in existence all by himself. And that's what the Muslims teach. Allah is, is eternal and he is the only one for eternity. There's no, no, nothing else other than him before creation. And yet here he, he's telling us, teaching us something that God existed in community in the beginning. With God was the word. With God. Theologians remind us here in verse number one and verse number two, as he emphatically says the same thing, he was in the beginning with God, is the language of intimacy, the language of nearness or closeness or, or community as we come to understand it. It is the language of being towards that in the beginning, before all this ever was in eternity past, that the word was turned towards God. Face to face, if we could look at it that way. In the beginning, the Word, the eternal Word and God was face to face. They were together. Isn't that fascinating to think about? Actually, I, I, I stop when I... Uh, <laughs> my mind stops when I just explain it in the way I've just explained it because we can't fathom eternity. We can't understand what was before, what is. 
all we see, all we know is wrapped up in creation and in what's around us and what we're used to and what we associate with. Yet God says and John is explaining to us that this Jesus is the eternal one who has always been before the face of God. Always. The Father beholding the Son for eternity past. But it's remarkable that he goes on not only is the word with God in eternity past we see this face-to-face close intimate relationship but he goes further to say and the word was God now that makes me scratch my head how many gods are there are they two gods are they three gods are they a whole plethora of the gods like the world in his day would have considered it in the Roman Empire you know all kinds of gods they didn't have a problem with them no he's using this in a singular fashion he's saying in the beginning the word was with God and the word was God there's still just one God if you want to talk about that later, we can, because that's all we're going to do is talk about it. How do you understand one God and two persons? Here you see the, the root of, our, of what we've come to understand, the doctrine of the Trinity. To, to emphasize this even further, he goes on, not only was the word God, not a God, as some people tend to think that, you know, he was a lesser God. That's very important. John is not saying that you have God, the, the big God, and then you got the little God, which is Jesus. He's not saying that at all. Just as God is God, he's saying so is the word God. They are co-equal, co-eternal of the same essence, of the same, of the same characteristics and likeness. To emphasize that, he goes on and say in verse number 3, Hear this eternal word. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Attributing to the word or attributing to Jesus as the creator of all things. Nothing was made without him. You see that in Colossians, all things were made through him. All things were made for him. He sustains all things by the word of his power. That's a fascinating and glorious thought. The eternal God, creator, all things made by him and all things made for him. He goes on to say, not only do you see that he's speaking of this eternal God, this word, but he says in verse number 14, the word became flesh. He took on flesh. He added to his nature, not undoing who he was. He didn't stop being God, as some have said. He didn't didn't commit divine suicide by taking on human flesh. No, he has always been eternal God. And yet we come to understand this time of year. We celebrate. Our minds focus on the baby in the manger. We come to understand here is the, the reality. He takes to himself human nature. He becomes flesh. A body. And not just a body, he's, he, he, you know, he, he's not just a, a form or, or a ghost, as some people would have thought in those days. You could just put your hand right through him. He just appeared to be human. Actually, John, dealing with this in 1 John, says we handled him. We've touched him with our own hands. We, we lived near him. We saw him. We, he, he's physical. He was a real person. He had a real body. But not just a form. He wasn't a shell. He wasn't, wasn't like... A, a robot, which the divine could just kind of sit in and pull the levers, you know. Or some concoction of man and God, you know, 50% God, 50% man, that's 100%. That's pretty good for us logical thinkers, right? We like that kind of mathematics. That's not what the Bible's saying. 
it teaches us that he took on a human nature, displaying all of its humanness. In fact, when you look at the language of Philippians chapter number 2, as he humbled himself, as he, as he lowered himself, as one translation say, as he emptied himself, theologians look at that as saying he emptied himself by ad- adding to himself humanity. In, in humbling himself, here the eternal word, the, the son of God, the, the one whom cherubims worship and cry out, holy, 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 has taken unto himself such weakness and frailty as a body like ours. And theologians refer to this as being very God and very man or truly God and truly man so we can understand the, the, the fullness of the reality of him taking on on flesh. We see that all through the Gospels, don't we? John explains this as he goes through his Gospel. The other Gospel writers tell us that, that here he possesses humanity Not just a shell, not just being driven, but he grew. He was this high and then he was this high and who knows how tall he was in his adult life. But he grew a physical body with bones and muscles and, and capacities to grab and push away and to, to push himself up. He, he learned, he, he understood things. But not just kind of ways we don't understand things. He, he actually learned how to walk. Mary and Joseph said, come here, let go of that. I don't know if they said that, how they do that in, in those days, you know, 2,000 years ago. I'm pretty sure they did the same thing. He lets go of things. He learns to walk. He learns his, his Hebrew alphabet. He, he learned the Torah from his parents. Here we see that we've come to understand that God the Son, the eternal one who sustains everything by the word of his power, is being taught his, his simple ABCs. I know it's not ABCs. You can correct that later, but you know what I mean. Isn't that fascinating? The omnipotent God is having to be held up or, or the mom holds his hand as they go for a walk or whatever they're doing. He learns. He knew more when he was 25 than he did when he was 15. He, he knew more when he was 15 than he did when he was 8 or 4. You see this this this, this condition, this, this coming into flesh wasn't just in appearance. It wasn't just in mocking fashion. No, he took upon himself humanity in, in its fullness. Now, there is a distinction because we come to understand that he is without sin and, and, and unmarked by the fall of Adam, not, not having sin in his own nature. But, but he, was, he was human. He was human. He felt, he loved, he got angry, he displayed disgust at the temple. You know that as he made cords and drove them out and and rebuked them. His compassion as he weeped over the multitudes over a city that he knew that would be destroyed because of their unbelief. Over and over, what do you see in the Gospels? You see, you see both of these things, I think, repeatedly, both the deity of God, but you also see the humanity of him. He had pain receptors, nerves connected to his skin, and, and his skin, if it was pricked or poked or hit or punched, 
his beard ripped out, it would hurt. It wasn't a superhuman to where he had all of those things cut off when he would go to be crucified for our sins. What you see in this, this reality of him coming, he came like us. He was born in the same fashion we were all. God became flesh. But not only do you see this in his person, I think of this poem that I read. I'll share it with you. It's actually a Christmas carol by Edward Caswell. In 1858, he says, Lo, within a manger lies he who built the starry skies, he who throned in height sublime sits among the cherubim. I want you to notice, secondly, his place. Look what he says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. Well, the language that John uses here is that similar to, of the, uh, similar to the Old Testament. We read that as Moses goes up and meets with God, God gives him instructions and, instrument, or instructions and directions and how to build what we come to understand, the tabernacle, the tent of meetings, where, where they would build that. And in the midst of Israel would be this place where, where it would symbolize the presence of God. So the temple or the tabernacle was that that visible declaration which Moses said was that testimony that God was with his people. In fact, as he is interceding for his people in Exodus chapter 33, as God says, you go on and I won't go with you. He says, don't you understand the very thing that sets us apart is your presence. What you see here in the gospel of John, what he is coming to make us to understand in this gospel is that That Christ, God, the eternal word has come taking on flesh and has tabernacled or or pitched his tent among us. He has come to be in the presence of his people. That's good news this morning. Because we come to understand how will we find him? How will we know who he is? We can't get to where God is. And yet what do you see? Him coming to us. Coming to live among us. Like us. Here he has pitched his tent. I was thinking how insignificant life can feel sometimes. Maybe you feel that way. As if you might fade into the backdrop of never being seen or noticed. That God is too busy to notice the struggles in your life. This morning let me invite you to see what we've seen here there in the passage. He has come to pitch his tent among us. He has come to us. He goes on to elaborate on this. Not only has he come to pitch his tent, we have seen his glory. Glory as the only son from the father. Referring back to that Shekinah glory as scholars would would suggest in the tabernacle. As they would see that that physical manifestation, the cloud. And and it would would represent the presence of God. Here what we have come to understand. If we're to see the presence of God. Then we're to look only to Christ. That's what he's saying. We, we've beheld him. There was a glory which Moses dared to look at, even prayed for. You, you remember that in Exodus chapter 33. Let me see your glory. And God says, you can't do that. You can't look upon me and live. And yet here John is saying the answer to Moses' prayer is seen. And it's not seen on a mountaintop. It is seen here in the person of Jesus Christ. 
that provision that God made for Moses, that cleft in the rock, is, is that New Testament idea of that rock being Christ himself. He is a refuge to those who come to him. We have seen his glory. We have seen the face of God. Do you want to know who God is this morning? His attitudes, his actions, what makes him tick? What he loves and what he likes, what he doesn't like? Then look to Christ. And that's what we've come to see. And this Christmas morning, God himself has come to, Christ has come this, to this world taking on flesh so that we might know him. So we're not left guessing who God is and left groping around as humanity tends to do. It it, it points us to this direction to behold the glory of God is to behold the glory of Christ. As one person put it, provocative, God is Christ-like. It's an interesting way of saying it, isn't it? To know God is to know Christ. To know Christ is to know God. As one theologian said this, that God in the Old Testament wrote in pencil, but here in living color, bold, bold declarations, he has made himself known in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. That's the invitation of the gospel. Come and know him. Come and see him because he has come to you. He has come to dwell among us so that we may dwell with him for eternity. John even testifies to this in John or in verse number 18, look at it with me as he goes on to say, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. And we look at that passage as he has come to exegete, as to bring out, to declare as the New American uh, Standard, and I think the King James puts it, that Jesus has come to show us and teach us and tell us who the Father is, who God is. And what you see here in this declaration in verse number 18, he is the only one qualified to do it. Hebrews says he is the exact imprint, the exact image of the Father is the Son. And here John is saying that he has come for this very purpose to declare, to to reveal to us who the Father is. John is just simply saying in verse number, we have seen it. We've seen the manifestation of God and it's found in the person of Jesus Christ. You see that in New American Standard puts it like this. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. He has explained him. There's never been a man like this. There's never been one where we can come and marvel at this union of the God-man. Truly God and truly man. Let me just read to you how they tried to explain it. They said the two whole, perfect, and distinct natures, the Godhead and manhood, were inseparably joined together in one person without conversion, composition, or confusion, Which person is very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man? But not only do you see his person and his place, as you see him among his people. Not aloof, but near us. 
you see his provision. Notice with me at the end of verse number 14. We have seen his glory, glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. You could say full of grace or loving kindness or merciful and truthfulness and faithfulness. Some going back to what we've been looking at in Exodus where he is praying for this revelation of God's glory and God reveals himself in chapter number 34 saying that he is a God who is long-suffering and merciful and he goes through all of these attributes about his goodness and forgiveness and, and, and then he goes and says he is truthful and faithful as to say, if that's what John is referring to here, that, that all that God says of himself is found and received at the hand of this, this word which became flesh. Found at this Jesus. Grace and truth. Grace and truth. His provision we see given to us in life here in the first chapter as we look in verse number 4. Is come that we might have life and that we might have it more abundantly. We read in the Gospel of John, he says in verse number four, in him, speaking of the word, was what? In him was life. And the life was the light of men. We go on and see that this life that he refers to is not just, just kind of I'll let you live kind of life. I'll just get you off the hook kind of life. But he, he, he brings us into the depth of it, revealing much of what John will say in the rest of his gospel. He says he came to his own in verse number 11, and his own people did not receive him, but all who did receive him, who believed in his name, gave he the right to become the children of God. This life that he offers to us, he came so that we may have everlasting life. A relationship born again, a new life in Christ Jesus. It's what he, Paul says as he reminds us that in 2 Corinthians that we are new creations in Jesus. Old things are passed away and all things become new. That new life is found, his provision, it's found in Jesus. It's not found in the law. He says that the law came through Moses, but... Verse number 17, the law was given through Moses and grace and truth came from Jesus Christ. That new kind of life is only found in Jesus. We celebrate the gospel because we're left in dark, dead in our trespasses and sin. And, and, and that point in human history, God has come with this gift of life, not just a baby that lives, but, but the gift that that baby would give to us at the death on a cross, and that is everlasting life. It is at the hand of Christ that we find this great promise and this great hope. His provision for us is life, new life, eternal life. John 3, where he says that we are born again, born again. But not only do we see his provision as life, you see it also in verse number 4 as light. He goes on and says, and the life was a light of men, and the light shines in darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. We spoke about that last week, for those of you who are with us. As Christ was come to a light unto the Gentiles, a light unto the nations who were given over into their paganism and their idolatry, groping around in the dark, trying to find their way in this world, and yet never coming up with the answer. What did they need? Well, they needed someone to come and turn a light on. 
They needed someone to open their eyes, something to to show them the way, something to show them the reality about the world they live in, the reality about their own existence, and the reality about God. All of this is found in, in the Word of God. It's all found from the Word that God has given to us. It's found in Christ. He has come so we don't have to make up things anymore and begin keep on worshiping creation and all the other things that we see in this life. That's what we do, right? That's what Romans says. We, we get confused. We get distorted. We, we don't know what's going on. We don't know who God is. And so we just make one. Worship whatever we want. And Jesus comes so that we might have no excuse, so that we might know who he is. So we may know him as a God of grace and mercy, a God of patience and long-suffering, a God of, a God of healing, a God of saving, a God of holiness, a God of justice. All of that's found in Christ. His coming so that we may have light. John speaks about us walking in the light as God is in the light. Not only does it convey the reality of us knowing God or that revelation, what we call the unveiling of God, but it comes to that safety in the fellowship that is at the hand of walking in the light. Where does that come from? What well, does it come from our legalistic heart, does it? We want a new rule. We want a new law. We want to be told what to do and let me do these three things and I'll be done with it. No, all of that is found here in this one person. This one person is found in Jesus Christ. The most significant answer we could ever answer is who is Christ? Not what the world is saying, but who he is. What are we saying? Who do you say that I am? Why, because all of our hope and destination All of our healing and restoration. All of it's wrapped up in who he is and what he has come to do and die on the cross and take our place. He has come and his provisions that he brings with him is that of life, that of light. But it is also that of grace. What a great great word and way to describe it. That's exactly what we see at Christmas. We see it all, all throughout the year, let me just say that, right? We see a demonstration of God moving towards us who were not deserving of that direction at the hand of God. We were at enmity with him, the Bible says, and we were against him. And yet God coming to us in such such simple form as a human. Taking upon himself our sin, all of that at at the demonstration of his love. The demonstration of his care towards us, undeserving, unmerited, and yet we receive at the hand of Christ favor. And I was sometimes growing up in church, and, and depending on what your church background is, sometimes we feel like God is ready to squish us, like a mean little kid with a magnifying glass and, and holding a light over an anthill. Maybe he's not a mean little kid. Who knows? You know, depending on your point of view with that. But we characterize God as that. And it's only because of our ignorance of the gospel. It's only because of our refusal to, to see it as it is 
And that is God's move, his, his loving kindness extended to us. The very fact that we have breath in our body at this moment to hear again the good news of Jesus Christ is a demonstration of his grace. We don't deserve that. And yet here we have it. Unmerited favor, but it speaks more than just that saving grace and, and his provision of life and life, but, but it also speaks to that that continual sustaining grace. He says, well, Paul says, well, he tells Paul, doesn't he, that my grace is what? It's a one-size-fits-all for every need, isn't it? And here in the language, not only do we see grace and truth coming at the hand of Christ and, and of his fullness, we see here in verse number 16 that there is, we have all received from his fullness grace upon grace. As if to say in, in another way, grace on top of her grace right after grace. Did you, you ever realize that you never exhaust God? Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I know that sometimes we feel like we're just so needy. And God's just tired of hearing us pray. Help us one more time. Give us wisdom and all this other stuff. As if, as if we use too much of God and go to Him too much and lean on Him too much or rest Him too much today that, that tomorrow we're going to have all of our resources for tomorrow used up. You might do that if you go in the refrigerator and, and, and treat your refrigerator that way, but it's not the way we treat God. He's never exhausted. His resources is never diminished by, by us coming to him. Actually, what you see is an overflow. He, he speaks in, in other places of the New Testament how he lavishes grace upon us. I, you know the Psalms where he says, Psalm 23, my cup what? Well, I don't need my cup running over. It'll spill out. I just need some in there to drink. And yet we see this bountiful, gracious God and how he treats his children who can answer us abundantly and what? Above and beyond all you could ask or think. Did you see that this morning? We come to celebrate the birth of Christ. We come to remind you that this same Jesus, it is at his end we receive all things through faith freely. Whatever you're going through, whatever you dealt with this year, whatever you're dealing with at this moment, His grace is always sufficient. Amen? You're never going to exhaust Him. He's not going to be like, you know, I, I had, had 200 pounds of grace yesterday and, and, and Tom used it all up. I ain't got nothing for, for so-and-so. He doesn't do that. We'll never exhaust it. Continually pouring out grace upon grace in our life because we continually need it. Why? Because grace is not a, a thing. It isn't a thing that we hold. It's a relationship we're in. We come to understand that grace is a declaration of God towards us. That because what the New Testament teaches, because we are in Christ, that we are seated with him in the heavenly places and we become his child and and he loves his children. And he cares for them. And he sustains them. And he supports them. And he carries them. He listens to them. You see, over and over we see that communion and that fellowship made through this baby born in a manger through this man who would walk this life and through this this savior who would die in our stead so that we we might have fellowship with god who is this jesus he is the word which became flesh where is his place 
to be among his people. It is right and fitting for us to honor Christ this week, but it is right and fitting for us to honor Christ every week of our lives. Because at his provision, we receive all things. We receive all things that we need. There's two responses found in this chapter, and we'll just look at those in in closing here this morning. The first one is found in verse number 10 and verse number 11. This is no new message. Maybe this is the first time you heard some of these things, but this is no new message. It's been preached. John bore witness of him all the way back uh, 2,000 years ago, give or take a few. Men have been standing up and people have been sharing and giving the message of Christ all those 2,000 years. And you always see these kind of two responses. And if you read the Gospel of John with these two responses in view, you just see it over and over. John emphatically is emphasizing these things that he is sharing with us. And the first is that he, he was unknown and unreceived. Verse number 10 He was in the world. The world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. Now you can imagine if you built something very nice or or you built an empire or business or whatever it is and then you walk in, you got employees and they just treat you like a nobody. They don't recognize that you're the leader. You're the boss. It's yours. Right? Any of you feel like that? That's kind of silly, isn't it? there's something to say the fact that here's the creator of the heavens and the earth the advanced expanse that we have we we haven't even touched the depth of what creation really is I mean we we study we stand amazed at it we can't explain it when people do explain it we can't even understand what they just said and yet the maker of that comes into the world and the world doesn't know him a stranger in his own creation But not only is there the lack of knowing him, you see in verse number 11, he came to his own. We can understand that with the pagans, right? They they would surely be worshiping everything coming and going. They didn't really care about that kind of thing. And yet he comes to his own people who should have been waiting for him. They should have been anticipating this this Messiah coming. And yet what do you read as he comes to, to his own? They did not receive him. You read at the end of John, this climax, when Pilate stands before them, which one do you want? The murderer or do you want the Messiah? They say, give us the murderer. At the end of his life, his own people, the leaders of his people, the multitudes stand up saying, crucify him. Sent the hope of Israel, the righteous one, and yet you find this rejection of him. That happens all the time, doesn't it? As you hear the gospel, maybe you here this morning have heard it over and over again and it just kind of glosses over and you're just numb to it and and over and over you make this same declaration. I I know him and I do not want him. And yet God in his grace continues to give you an opportunity like today to hear one more time. Here, Here is his provision. Here is his gift of life and hope. How many reject him? And yet you see the second response found in verse number 12 and 13. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Don't you love that? 
There's a multitude who's rejected him. There's a multitude in our world, in our life, maybe even in our family. Maybe even our seats and our pews week after week who reject him. I don't know. But to as many as receive him. To those who come to him, those who believe on his name, those who at the gracious offer of his grace and his his forgiveness, they receive it. To them, he gave the right, the power to become the children of God. That's what it means to receive. That's what you do with a gift, right? As you gather around your your little tree, big tree, medium-sized tree, whatever kind of tree you got, no tree. As you gather around that and people have a name written on a box or an envelope or whatever and they hand it to you, you receive it. What does that mean when it comes to our salvation? He says, receiving is to those who believe on his name. What are you resting in? What do you believe? It is those who believe on his name, those who are resting in him for their salvation, their only hope in life and death. He gave the right to become the children of God. And what a grace work that is, because he says it wasn't something you did, not born, not of blood, nor the will of flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. But of God. It's my prayer that each of you here this morning, at some point in your life, or even this morning, the message of the gospel, at the answer of the question of who Jesus is, he is the one in whom you've received He is your hope and salvation for life and death. Don't go home rejecting, turning away again. Year after year after year, continually turning away. That time you cannot have back. This is a new day. This is a new moment. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. Now is the appointed time. Now is the accepted time. It also says in Romans chapter number 10, they that call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. I would just encourage you, if you don't know who Christ is, call on him this morning. And if you have received life at his hands, what a, what a season to rejoice in this, the provisions he offers to us. To stand amazed at what it means that God... The eternal word became flesh. We'll look at some of the implications of that in the weeks ahead. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your grace to us and what a joy it is to be in your house, to sing your praise, to worship you, Lord, and at the center of it all, the center of this this life, the center of our hope center of our understanding lies this mystery, this profound wonder of Jesus. Very God and very man. Who has come so that we might know you. And that in knowing you that we might have everlasting life. I just pray, Lord, this morning for those who have gathered together this morning that don't have that hope. That they, that they would turn to him and be saved. They would put their faith and trust in him even this morning. And I pray for all of us who feel lost and obscure, even those who have believed on your name and who are resting in you for everlasting life, to be encouraged you came to dwell with us, among us. And you still do through the power and the work of the Holy Spirit. Just encourage them, lift their spirits even this season. We'll give you the glory for that in Jesus' name. Amen.